Chapter Fourteen of Indiana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. Indiana by Georges Sand. Translated by George Burnham Ives. Chapter Fourteen. Raymond was amazed at what seemed to take place in Indiana's being as soon as the hounds were away. Her eyes gleamed, her cheeks flushed, the dilation of her nostrils betrayed an indefinable thrill of fear or pleasure, and suddenly driving her spurs into her horse's side, she left him and galloped after Ralph. Raymond did not know that hunting was the only passion that Ralph and Indiana had in common nor did he suspect that in that frail and apparently timid woman there abode a more than masculine courage that sort of delirious intrepidity which sometimes manifests itself like a nervous paroxysm in the feeblest creatures women rarely have the physical courage which consists in offering the resistance of inertia to pain or danger but they often have the moral courage which attains its climax in peril or suffering Indiana's delicate fibres delighted above all things in the tumult, the rapid movement, and the excitement of the chase. That miniature image of war, with its fatigues, its stratagems, its calculations, its hazards, and its battles. Her dull, ennui-laden life needed this excitement. At such times she seemed to awake from a lethargy, and to expend in one day all the energy that she had left to ferment uselessly in her blood for a whole year. Raymond was terrified to see her ride away so fast, abandoning herself fearlessly to the impetuous spirit of a horse that she hardly knew, rushing him through the thickets, avoiding with amazing skill the branches that lashed at her face as they sprang back, leaping ditches without hesitation, venturing confidently on clay, slippery ground, heedless of the risk of breaking her slender limbs but eager to be first on the smoking scent of the boar. So much determination alarmed him, and nearly disgusted him with Madame Delmare. Men, especially lovers, are addicted to the innocent fatuity of preferring to protect weakness rather than to admire courage in womankind. Shall I confess it? Raymond was terrified at the promise of high spirit and tenacity in love which such intrepidity seemed to afford. It was not like the resignation of poor Noun, who preferred to drown herself rather than to contend against her misfortunes. If there's as much vigor and excitement in her tenderness as there is in her diversions, he thought, if her will clings to me, fierce and palpitating, as her caprice clings to that boar's quarters, why society will impose no fetters on her, the law will have no force, my destiny will have to succumb, and I shall have to sacrifice my future to her present. Cries of terror and distress, among which he could distinguish Madame Delmar's voice, roused Raymond from these reflections. He anxiously urged his horse forward, and was soon overtaken by Ralph, who asked him if he had heard the outcries. At that moment several terrified whippers in rode up to them, crying out confusedly that the boar had charged and overthrown Madame Delmar. Other huntsmen in still greater dismay appeared, 
calling for Sir Ralph, whose surgical skill was required by the injured person. "'It's of no use,' said a late arrival. "'There is no hope. Your help will be too late.' In that moment of horror, Raymond's eyes fell upon the pale, gloomy features of Monsieur Brown. He did not cry out. He did not foam at the mouth. He did not wring his hands. He simply took out his hunting-knife, and with a sang-froid truly English was preparing to cut his own throat, when Raymond snatched the weapon from him and hurried him in the direction from which the cries came. Ralph felt as if he were waking from a dream when he saw Madame Delmar rush to meet him and urge him forward to the assistance of her husband, who lay on the ground, apparently lifeless. Sir Ralph made haste to bleed him, for he had speedily satisfied himself that he was not dead, but his leg was broken, and he was taken to the chateau. As for Madame Delmarre, in the confusion her name had been substituted by accident for that of her husband, or perhaps Ralph and Raymond had erroneously thought that they heard the name in which they were most interested. Indiana was uninjured, but her fright and consternation had almost taken away her power of locomotion. Raymond supported her in his arms, and was reconciled to her womanly heart, when he saw how deeply affected she was by the misfortune of a husband whom she had much to forgive before pitying him. Sir Ralph had already recovered his accustomed tranquillity, but an extraordinary pallor revealed the violent shock he had experienced. He had nearly lost one of the two human beings whom he loved. Raymond, who alone in that moment of confusion and excitement had retained sufficient presence of mind to understand what he saw, had been able to judge of Ralph's affection for his cousin, and how little it was balanced by his feeling for the colonel. This observation, which positively contradicted Indiana's opinion, did not depart from Raymond's memory, as it did from that of the other witnesses of the scene. However, Raymond never mentioned to Madame Delmar the attempted suicide, of which he had been a witness. In this ungenerous reserve there was a suggestion of selfishness and bad temper, which you will forgive, perhaps, in view of the amorous jealousy which was responsible for it. After six weeks the colonel was, with much difficulty, removed to Lagny, but it was more than six months thereafter before he could walk, for before the fractured femur was fairly reduced he had an acute attack of rheumatism in the injured leg, which condemned him to excruciating pain and absolute immobility. His wife lavished the most loving attentions upon him. She never left his bedside, and endured without a complaint his bitter fault-finding humor, his soldier-like testiness, and his invalid's injustice. Despite the ennui of such a depressing life, her health became robust and flourishing once more, and happiness took up its abode in her heart. Raymond loved her. He really loved her. He came every day. He was discouraged by no difficulty in the way of seeing her. He bore with the infirmities of her husband, her cousin's coldness, the constraint of their interviews. A glance from him filled Indiana's heart with joy for a whole day. She no longer thought of complaining of life. Her heart was full. Her youthful nature had ample employment. Her moral force had something to feed upon. The colonel gradually came to feel very friendly to Raymond. 
he was simple enough to believe that his neighbor's assiduity in calling upon him was a proof of the interest he took in his health madame de ramiere also came occasionally to sanction the liaison by her presence and indiana became warmly and passionately attached to raymond's mother at last the wife's lover became the husband's friend as a result of being thus constantly thrown together raymond and ralph perforce became intimate in a certain sense they called each other my dear fellow they shook hands morning and night if either of them desired to ask a slight favor of the other the regular form was this i count upon your friendship etc and when they spoke of each other they said he is a friend of mine but although they were both as frank and outspoken as a man can be in the world they were not at all fond of each other they differed essentially in their opinions on every subject they had no likes or dislikes in common and although they both loved madame delmar they loved her in such a different way that that sentiment divided them instead of bringing them together they found a singular pleasure in contradicting each other and in disturbing each other's equanimity as much as possible by reproaches which were none the less sharp and bitter because they took the form of generalities their principal and most frequent controversies began with politics and ended with morals it was in the evening when they were all assembled around monsieur delmar's easy chair that discussions arose on the most trivial pretexts they always maintained the external courtesy which philosophy imposed on the one and social custom on the other but they sometimes said to each other under the thin veil of illusions some very harsh things which amused the colonel for he was naturally bellicose and quarrelsome and loved disputes in default of battles for my part i believe that a man's political opinion is the whole man tell me what your heart and your head are and i will tell you your political opinions in whatever rank or political party chance may have placed us at our birth our character prevails sooner or later over the prejudice or artificial beliefs of education you will call that a very sweeping statement perhaps but how could i persuade myself to augur well of a mind that clings to certain theories which a generous spirit rejects show me a man who maintains the usefulness of capital punishment and however conscientious and enlightened he may be i defy you ever to establish any sympathetic connection between him and me if such a man attempts to instruct me as to facts which i do not know he will never succeed for it will not be in my power to give him my confidence ralph and raymond differed on all points and yet before they knew each other they had no clearly defined opinions but as soon as they were at odds each of them maintained the contrary of what the other advanced and in that way they would form for themselves an absolute unassailable conviction raymond was on all occasions the champion of existing society ralph attacked its structure at every point the explanation was simple raymond was happy and treated with the utmost consideration ralph had known nothing of life but its evils and its bitterness one found everything very satisfactory the other was dissatisfied with everything men and things had maltreated ralph and heaped benefits upon raymond and like two children they referred everything to themselves 
setting themselves up as a court of the last resort in regard to the great questions of social order, although they were equally incompetent. Thus Ralph always upheld his visionary scheme of a republic from which he proposed to exclude all abuses, all prejudices, all injustice, a scheme founded entirely upon the hope of a new race of men. Raymond upheld his doctrine of an hereditary monarchy, preferring, he said, to endure abuses, prejudice, and injustice, to seeing scaffolds erected and innocent blood shed. The colonel was almost always on Ralph's side at the beginning of the discussion. He hated the Bourbons, and imparted to all his opinions all the animosity of his sentiments. But soon Raymond would adroitly bring him over to his side, by proving to him that the monarchy was in principle much nearer the empire than the republic. Ralph was so lacking in the power of persuasion, he was so sincere, so bungling, the poor baronet. His frankness was so unpolished, his logic so dull, his principles so rigid. He spared no one, he softened no harsh truth. Parbleu, he would say to the colonel, when that worthy cursed England's intervention, what in heaven's name have you, a man of some common sense and reasoning power, I suppose, to complain of because a whole nation fought fairly against you? Fairly? Delmar would repeat the word, grinding his teeth together and brandishing his crutch. Let us leave political questions to be decided by the powers concerned, Sir Ralph would say as we have adopted a form of government which forbids us to discuss our interest ourselves. If a nation is responsible for the faults of its legislature, what one can you find that is guiltier than yours? And so I say, monsieur, shame upon France which abandoned Napoleon and submitted to a king proclaimed by the bayonets of foreigners, the colonel would exclaim. For my part, I do not say shame upon France, Sir Ralph would rejoin, but woe to her. I pity her because she was so weak and so diseased on the day she was purged of her tyrant that she was compelled to accept your rag of a constitutional charter, a mere shred of liberty, which you are beginning to respect now that you must throw it aside and conquer your liberty over again. Thereupon Raymond would pick up the gauntlet that Sir Ralph threw down. A knight of the charter, he chose to be a knight of liberty as well and he proved to Ralph with marvellous skill that one was the expression of the other, that if he shattered the charter, he overturned his own idol. In vain would the baronet struggle in the unsound arguments in which Monsieur de Ramier entangled him. With admirable force, he would argue that a greater extension of the suffrage would infallibly lead to the excesses of ninety-three, and that the nation was not yet ripe for liberty, which is not the same as license. And when Sir Ralph declared that it was absurd to attempt to confine a constitution within a certain number of articles, that what was sufficient at first would eventually become insufficient, supporting his argument by the example of the convalescent, whose needs increased every day, Raymond would reply to all these commonplaces expressed with difficulty by Monsieur Brown that the charter was not an immovable circle, that it would stretch with the necessities of France attributing to it an elasticity which, he said, would afford later a means of satisfying the demands of the nation, but which, in fact, satisfied only those of the crown. As to Del Mar, 
He had not advanced a step since 1815. He was a stationary mortal, as full of prejudices and as obstinate as the émigrés at Coblence, the never-failing subjects of his implacable irony. He was like an old child, and had failed utterly to comprehend the great drama of the downfall of Napoleon. He had seen naught but the fortune of war in that crisis when the power of public opinion triumphed. He was forever talking of treason and of selling the country, as if a whole nation could betray a single man, as if France would have allowed itself to be sold by a few generals. He accused the Bourbons of tyranny, and sighed for the glorious days of the empire, when arms were lacking to till the soil, and families were without bread. He declaimed against Franchet's police, and extolled Fouché's. He was still at the day after Waterloo. It was really a curious thing to listen to the sentimental idiocies of Delmar and Monsieur de Ramier, philanthropic dreamers both, one under the sword of Napoleon, the other under the scepter of Saint-Louis. Monsieur Delmar planted at the foot of the pyramids, Raymond seated under the monarchic shadow of the Oak of Vincennes. Their utopias, which clashed at first, became reconciled in due time. Raymond limed the colonel with his chivalrous sentiments. For one concession he exacted ten, and he accustomed him, little by little, to the spectacle of twenty-five years of victory, ascending in a spiral column under the folds of the white flag. If Ralph had not constantly cast his abrupt, rough observations into the center of Monsieur de Ramier's flowery rhetoric, he would infallibly have won Delmar over to the throne of 1815. But Ralph irritated his self-esteem, and the bungling outspokenness with which the Englishman strove to shake his convictions served only to anchor him more firmly in his imperialism. Thus all Monsieur de Ramier's efforts were wasted. Ralph trod heavily upon the flowers of his eloquence, and the colonel returned with renewed enthusiasm to his tricolor. He swore that he would shake off the dust from it some fine day, that he would spit on the lilies, and restore the Duc de Reichstadt to the throne of his fathers. He would begin anew the conquest of the world, and he always concluded by lamenting the disgrace that rested upon France the rheumatism that glued him to his chair, and the ingratitude of the Bourbons to the old moustaches whom the son of the desert had burned, and who had swarmed over the ice-flows of the Moscova. "'My poor fellow,' Ralph would say, "'for heaven's sake be fair. You complain because the restoration did not pay for services rendered the empire, and because it did reimburse the emigres. Tell me, if Napoleon could come to life again to-morrow in all his power,' Would you like it if he should withdraw his favor from you and bestow it on the partisans of legitimacy, every one for himself and his own? These are business discussions, disputes concerning private interests, which have little interest for France now that you are almost all as incapacitated as the voltigeurs of the immigration, and that whether gouty, married, or sulking, you are all equally useless to her. However, she must support you all, and you see who can complain the loudest of her. When the day of the Republic dawns, she will clear her skirts of all your demands, and it will be no more than justice. 
these trivial but self-evident observations offended the colonel like so many personal affronts and ralph who with all his good sense did not realize that the pettiness of spirit of a man whom he esteemed could go so far fell into the habit of irritating him without mercy before raymond's arrival there had been a tacit agreement between the two to avoid every subject of controversy in which there might be some clashing and wounding of delicate sensibilities but raymond brought into their conversation all the subtleties of the language all the petty artifices of civilization he taught them that people can say anything to one another indulge in all sorts of reproaches and shield themselves behind the pretext of legitimate discussion he introduced among them the habit of disputation then tolerated in the salons because the vindictive passions of the hundred days had finally become appeased had assumed divers milder shades but the colonel had retained all the vehemence of his passions and ralph made a sad mistake in thinking that it was possible for him to listen to reason Monsieur delmar became daily more sour toward him and drew nearer to raymond who without making too extensive concessions knew how to assume an appearance of graciousness in order to spare the other's self-esteem it is a great impudence to introduce politics as a pastime in the domestic circle if there exist to-day any peaceful and happy families i advise them to subscribe to no newspaper not to read a single line of the budget to bury themselves in the depth of their country estates as in an oasis and to draw between themselves and the rest of society a line that none may pass for if they allow the echoes of our disputes to meet their ears it is all over with their union and their repose it is hard to imagine how much gall and bitterness political differences cause between near kindred most of the time they simply afford an opportunity for reproaching one another for defects of character mental obliquities and vices of the heart they would not dare to call one another knave imbecile ambitious villain or poltroon they express the same idea by such names as jesuit royalist revolutionist and trimmer these are different words but the insult is the same and all the more stinging because they may pursue and attack one another in this fashion without restraint without mercy there is an end to all mutual toleration of failings all charitable spirit all generous and delicate reserve nothing is overlooked everything is attributed to political feeling and beneath that mask hatred and vengeance are freely exhaled o oh, ye blessed dwellers in the country if there still be any country in france shun shun politics and read the podin by your firesides but the contagion is so great that there is no retreat obscure enough no solitude profound enough to hide and shelter the man who would find a refuge for his amiable heart from the tempest of our civil dissensions in vain had the little chateau in brie defended itself for years against this ill-omened invasion it lost in time its heedlessness its active domestic life its long evenings of silence and meditation noisy disputes awoke its slumbering echoes bitter and threatening words terrified the faded cherubs who had smiled amid the dust of the hangings for a hundred years past the excitements of present-day life 
found their way into that ancient dwelling and all those old-fashioned splendors all those relics of a period of pleasure and frivolity saw with dismay the advent of an epoch of doubt and declamation represented by three men who shut themselves up together every day to quarrel from morning till night end of chapter fourteen